Chapter Six of How to Write a Novel by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Studies in Literary Technique Continued. Color, local and otherwise. One morning you opened your paper and found that Mr. Simon St. Clair had gone into Wales in search of local color. What does local color mean? The appearance of the country, the dress and language of the people, all that distinguishes that particular locality from others near and remote is local color take kipling's mandalay as an illustration he speaks of the ringing temple bell of the garlic smells and the dawn that comes up like thunder there are elephants piling teak and all the special details of the particular locality find a characteristic expression for what reason well local color renders two services to literature it makes very often a pleasing or striking picture in itself and it is used by the author to bring out special features in his story kipling's underlying idea comes to the surface when he says that a man who has lived in the east always hears the east a-calling him back again there is deep pathos in the idea alone but when it is set in the external characteristics of eastern life one locality chosen to set forth the rest and stated in language that few can equal the entire effect is very striking whenever local color is of picturesque quality there is a temptation to substitute word painting for the story the desire for novelty is at the bottom of a good deal of modern extravagance in this direction but the truth still remains that local color has an important function to discharge namely to increase the artistic value of good narrative by suggesting the environment of the dramatis personae you must have noticed the opening chapters of the scarlet letter why all this careful detailing of the customs house the manners and talk of the people for no other reason than that just given but there is another use of color in literary composition perhaps i can best illustrate my purpose by quoting from an interview with james lane allen who certainly ought to know what he is talking about the author of the choir invisible and summer in arcady occupies a position in fiction which makes his words worth considering said mr allen to the interviewer a friend of mine a painter had just finished reading some little thing that i had succeeded in having published in the century what do you think of it i asked him tell me frankly what you like and what you don't like it is interestingly told dramatic polished and all that allen was his reply but why in the world did you neglect such an opportunity to drop in some color here and at this point and there it came over me like that said the kentuckian snapping his fingers that words indicating colors can be manipulated by the writer just as pigments are by the painter i never forgot the lesson and now when i describe a landscape or a house or a costume i try to put it into such words that an artist can paint the scene from my words evidently mr allen learned his lesson long ago but is one every writer should study carefully mr baring gould also gives his experience in one of my stories i sketched a girl in a white frock leaning against a sunny garden wall tossing gelder roses i had some burnished gold-green flies on the old wall preening in the sun so to complete the scene i put her on gold-green leather shoes and made the girl's eyes of much the same hue thus we had a picture where the color was carried through and if painted would have been artistic and satisfying a red sash would have spoiled all so i gave her one that was green so we had the white dress the gelder rose balls greeny white and through the ranges of green gold were led up to her hair which was red gold i lay some stress on this formation of picture in tones of color because it pleases myself when writing it satisfies my artistic sense 
a thousand readers may not observe it but those who have any art in them will at once receive therefrom a pleasing expression these two testimonies make the matter very plain if anything is needed it is a more practical illustration taken direct from a book for this purpose i have chosen a choice piece from george de maurier's peter ibbetson a book that was half killed by the trilby boom before us lies a sea of fern gone russet brown from decay in which are isles of dark green gorse and little trees with scarlet and orange lemon-colored leaflets fluttering down and running after each other on the bright grass under the brisk west wind which makes the willows rustle and turn up the whites of their leaves in pious resignation to the coming change harrow on the hill with its pointed spire rises blue in the distance and distant ridges like the receding waves rise into blueness one after the other out of the low-lying mist the last ridge bluely melting into space in the midst of it all gleams the welsh harp lake like a piece of sky that has become unstuck and tumbled into the landscape with its shiny side up what about dialect dialect is local color individualized ian mclaren in the bonnie briar bush following in the wake of crockett and berry has given us the dialect of scotland baron gould and a host of others have provided us with dialect stories of english counties jane barlow and several irish writers deal with the sister island wales has not been forgotten and the american novelists have their big territory mapped out into convenient sections soon the acreage of locality literature will have been completely written up i do not say its yielding powers will have been exhausted for as with other species of local color dialect has had to suffer at the hands of the imitator who dragged dialect into his paltry narrative for its own sake and to give him the opportunity of providing the reader with a glossary the reason why dialect stories were so popular some time ago was twofold first dialect imparts a flavor to a narrative especially when it is in contrast to educated utterances on the part of the other characters but the chief reason is that dialect people have more character than other people as a rule they afford greater scope for literary artistry than can be found in life a stage or two higher with its correctness and artificiality st bev said all peasants have style yes that is the truth exactly there is an individuality about the peasant that is absent from the town dweller and this fact explains the piquancy of many novels that owe their popularity to the representations of the rustic population the dialect story or novel cannot hope for permanency unless it contains elements of universal interest the emphasis laid on a certain type of speech stamps such a literary production with the brand of narrowness i understand that ian mclaren has been translated into french can you imagine dramshu in gaelic or jamie sutar never only that which is literature in the highest sense can be translated into another language hence the life of corners in scotland or elsewhere has no special interest for the world in general the rule as to dealing with dialect is quite simple never use the letters of the alphabet to reproduce the sound of such language in a literal manner suggest dialect that is all have nothing to do with glossaries people hate dictionaries however brief when they read fiction george eliot and thomas hardy are good models of the wise use of country speech on dialogue in making your characters talk it should be your aim not to reproduce their conversation but to indicate it here as elsewhere the first principle of all art is selection and from many words which you have heard your characters use you must choose those that are typical in view of the purpose you have in hand i once had a letter from a youthful novelist in which he said it's splendid to write a story i make my characters say what i like swear if necessary and all that now you can't make your characters say what you like 
you are obliged to make them say what is in keeping with their known dispositions and with the circumstances in which they are placed at the time of speaking if you know your characters intimately you will not put wise words into the mouth of a clown unless you have suitably provided for such a surprise neither will you write long speeches for the sullen villain who is to be the human devil of the narrative remember therefore that the key to propriety and effectiveness in writing is the knowledge of those ideal people whom you are going to use in your pages windiness and irrelevancy are the twin evils of conversations in fiction trollope says it is so easy to make two persons talk on any casual subject with which the writer presumes himself to be conversant literature philosophy politics or sport may be handled in a loosely discursive style and the writer while indulging himself is apt to think he is pleasing the reader i think he can make no greater mistake the dialogue is generally the most agreeable part of a novel but it is only so as long as it tends in some way to the telling of the main story it need not be confined to this but it should always have a tendency in that direction the unconscious critical acumen of a reader is both just and severe when a long dialogue on extraneous matter reaches his mind he at once feels that he is being cheated into taking something that he did not bargain to accept when he took up the novel he does not at that moment require politics or philosophy but he wants a story he will not perhaps be able to say in so many words that at some point the dialogue has deviated from the story but when it does he will feel it a word or two as to what kind of dialogue assists in telling the main story may not be amiss return to the suggested plot of the jewess and the roman catholic what are they to talk about anything that will assist their growing intimacy that will bring out the peculiar personalities of both and contribute to the development of the narrative in a previous section i said that the denouement decided the selection of your characters in some respects it will also decide the topics of their conversation certain events have to be provided for in order that they may be both natural and inevitable and it becomes your duty to create incidents and introduce dialogue which will lead up to these events with reference to models for study advice is difficult to give quite a gallery of masters would be needed for the purpose as there are so many points in one which are lacking in another besides a great novelist may have eccentricities in dialogue and be quite normal in other respects george meredith is as artificial in dialogue as he is in the use of phrases pure and simple and yet he succeeds in spite of defects not by them here is a sample from the egoist have you walked far today nine and a half hours my flippity gibbet is too much for me at times and i have had to walk off my temper all those hours were required not quite so long you are training for your alpine tour it's doubtful whether i shall get to the alps this year i leave the hall and shall probably be in london with a pen to sell willoughby knows that you leave him as much as mont blanc knows that he is going to be climbed by a party below he sees a speck or two in the valley he has spoken of it he would attribute it to changes i need not discuss how far this advances the novelist's narrative but it is plain that it is not a model for the beginner for smartness and point nothing could be better than anthony hope's dolly dialogues although the style is not necessarily that of a novel points in conversation never allow the reader to be in doubt as to who is speaking when he has to turn back to discover the speaker's identity you may be sure there is something wrong with your construction you need not quote the speaker's name in order to make it plain that he is speaking all that is needed is a little attention to the said james and replied susan of your dialogues when once these two have commenced a talk they can go on in a catechism form for a considerable period but if a third party chimes in a more careful disposition of names is called for beginners very often have a good deal of trouble with their saids replieds and answers 
Here again, a little skillful maneuvering will obviate the difficulty. This is a specimen of third-class style. I'm off on Monday, said he. Not really, said she. Yes, I have only come to say good-bye, said he. Shall you be gone long, asked she. That depends, said he. I should like to know what takes you away, said she. I dare say, said he, smiling. I shouldn't wonder if I know, said she. I dare say you might guess, said he. Could anything be more wooden than this perpetual, said he, and said she, which I have accentuated by putting into italics? Now observe the difference when you read the following. Observed silver. Cried the cook. Returned Morgan. Said another. Agreed silver. Said the fellow with the bandage. There is no lack of suitable verbs for dialogue purposes. Remarked, retorted, inquired, demanded, murmured, grumbled, growled, sneered, explained, and a host more. Without a ready command of such vocabulary, you cannot hope to give variety to your character conversations. And, what is of graver importance, you will not be able to bring out the essential qualities of such remarks as you introduce. For instance, to put a sarcastic utterance into a man's mouth, and then to write down that he replied with those words, is not half so effective as to say he sneered them. Probably you will be tempted to comment on your dialogue as you write by insinuating remarks as to actions, looks, gestures, and the like. This is a good temptation, so far, but it has its dangers. The ancient Hebrew writer, in telling a story of Hezekiah, said that Isaiah went to the king with these words, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed. If you can make a comment as dramatic and forceful as that, make it. But avoid useless and uncalled-for remarks, and remember that you really want nothing, not even a fine epigram, which fails to contribute to the main purpose. Atmosphere It will not be inappropriate to close this chapter with a few words on what is called atmosphere. The word is often met with in the vocabulary of the reviewer. He is marvelously keen in scenting atmospheres. Perhaps an illustration may be the best means of exposition. The reviewer is speaking of Maeterlinck's Aladdin and Palamedes, Interior, and the Death of Tintagiles, he says. We find in them the same strange atmosphere to which we have grown accustomed in Peleus and Lantrousse. We are in a region of no fixed plane, a region that this world never saw. It is a region such as Arnold Boeckland perhaps might paint, and many a child describe. A castle stands upon a cliff. Endless galleries and corridors and winding stairs run through it. Beneath lie vast grottoes where subterranean waters throw up unearthly light from depths where seaweed grows. This is very true, and put into bald language it means that Maeterlinck has succeeded in creating an artistic environment for his weird characters. It is the setting in which he has placed them. In the first scene of Hamlet, Shakespeare creates the necessary atmosphere to introduce the events that are to follow. The soldiers on guard are concerned and afraid. The reader is thereby prepared, step by step, for the reception of the whole situation. Everything that will strengthen the impression of a coming fatality is seized by the master hand, and made to do service in creating an atmosphere of such expectant quality. An artist by nature will select intuitively the persons and facts he needs, but there is no reason why a study of these necessities, a slow and careful pondering, should not at last succeed in alighting upon the precise and inevitable details which delicately and subtly produce the desired result. In this sense, the matter can hardly be called a minor detail, but the expression has been sufficiently guarded. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.